Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. And here in the studio with us is Paul Christopher. He is head of global market strategy for Wells Fargo Institute. And he joins us now. Paul, thank you very much for being with us. Great to be with you again, Pim. Um, What has happened in your life uh, since uh, the conclusion of the U.S. presidential election? Give us a little window into the world of a global strategist. You mean besides no sleep? Uh, well, you could add that to the mix we as well. We talk about no sleep. How are you handling it? <laughs> well, what, what we're seeing is, is markets really anticipating a lot, extrapolating a lot, and we're still, we're still pretty cautious on uh, whether or not those extrapolations and anticipations will be fully realized, especially in the near term. You mean people, right? I mean, people are doing all people this, are or doing machines this. or a computer yeah, of some right. kind, but basically <laughs> people are, are making these decisions, these speculative bets. People are making anticipatory bets on how they think policy will work out, and some of those bets may have to be changed over the coming weeks and months as we see the uh, how the president-elect will prioritize the new policy initiatives and how the Congress will play with the new president going forward. So, Paul, uh, before uh, offline, we were talking about how you're advising clients to not change their investment strategies from before the election to sort of stay the course. Uh, So what were you advising then as far as the proportion of cash people should be holding, the mix of bonds and stocks? Mm -hmm. Our tactical views uh, were were really pretty pretty cautious, pretty defensive. We were holding a little bit of cash on the sidelines, looking for an opportunity, but we're really oriented towards quality. So we've been overweight U.S. large cap stocks, but we've been underweight U.S. small caps as we get to a point in the cycle where things might not look so good for small caps. We've been underweight emerging market equities, and that's hurt a little bit, but we do still see some problems, some real challenges in those places. And we've also been underweight the long end of the yield curve curve and overweight the middle part of the yield curve, really not wanting to take chances uh, that we'll get sudden changes in yields, and therefore we would prefer to have people position more intermediately. Let's just take a couple of those uh, specifics. I want to ask you about small and mid-cap stocks. For example, the Russell uh, 2000 has (laughs) seen a very good run since the results of the presidential election. The dollar has also strengthened. Would that help small and mid-cap companies that mainly do business, let's say, in the United States that don't have that currency risk? Historically, that that has been the connection, Pim, but but it may be not quite so simple going forward. Suppose the administration, for example, were to start working on a lot of trade restrictions. Uh, a lot of U.S. companies have supply chains that extend beyond our borders. Uh, you could have a, a small manufacturer, for example, that imports electric motors from Mexico. If Mexico is targeted uh, for trade sanctions, those motors get more expensive and all of a sudden earnings get hit or prices happen have to rise. So it's not necessarily the case going forward that we can rely on on some of those old one-on-one relationships. Uh, inflation. Before the election, the dominant view, uh, before the election, uh, the dominant view was that we were in a slow growth period with some inflation, but nothing that was uh, uh, too too much to write home about. Now, all of a sudden, people are pricing in much higher rates of inflation. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, you, 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 the reason they're doing that is because they're seeing policy promises made on the campaign trail. And remember, the campaign trail is subject to hyperbole. 
So it's it's always possible that we could see some of these promises not quite work out the way they were promised. But on the campaign trail, promises of trade restrictions are themselves inflationary, as well as promises that we're going to cut taxes and increase, let's say, infrastructure spending. That would also tend to be uh, tend to tend to work towards inflation. So whether one looked at one side of the promises or another, inflation seemed to be the result, and that's that that also appears to be the result of the the market pricing in the last week or so. Paul, if you love the U.S. Treasury, a ten-year, for example, at under two percent, do you really, really love them now that they're above 2%? <laughs> well, some some increase in yields is probably inevitable. The question will be, what's going to be the timing? Uh, do we expect to see all of those policies develop inflation all at once? Or do we expect the inflation effects to develop over time? Or do we expect instead that some of those inflationary effects may be offsetting to one another? For example, if you had higher yields, that could slow growth and therefore slow inflation. No, I know. I understand that. But I'm just wondering, for example, if now you were to buy the U.S. 10-year, you would get 22 If you are long the U.S. tenure at anything less than that, would you recommend people buy it? Well, we want we want clients to be up to their their uh, their recommended long term allocations and tenures. Uh, But we are over or excuse me, we're underweight uh, the uh, the long term part of the yield curve again because there's always that risk volatility out there where sudden increases in yields would damage the portfolio the the bond portfolio. What what's the scariest spot in the market right now? Uh, good question. Scariest spot in the market might be a bet that commodity prices are going to rise here. If, you, if you're thinking maybe that the Trump administration would boost growth and maybe boost inflation and therefore the commodity prices would rise in response or rise simultaneously, we think that's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch. After all, supply and demand in the commodity world still really hasn't been reestablished convincingly. Uh, we still think those commodity prices have some years of bouncing around in ranges to go. Are there any screaming buys? No, not really. Uh, again, uh, we, we would want we would want clients to mostly be looking to take advantage. Uh, if you, for example, are underweight in treasuries, it might be a good time to start averaging into that market. Uh, if you're underweight in equities, we would be averaging into that market right now, uh, just to make sure that you're at the at the recommended long term levels. We'll get more clarity and we can adjust tactical positions later on once we see again how the president's priority list looks and how the Congress plays with that list. What about corporate earnings? I thought that corporate earnings were the determinant for long-term stock performance. Long-term stock performance, yes. Tactically, uh, we're we're still th- seeing about a six to seven percent gain in earnings for next year, but possibly some cap on valuations if inflation does surprise to the upside. Why? Because you think that investors won't pay more for the same dollar of earnings. You won't get that expansion in the multiple. That's right. Yeah. If you get some expansion, if you, sorry, if you get some expansion in multiples, let's say at mid-year, and then inflation starts to surprise on the upside later in the year, you have to start bringing the Fed back into the picture, and will they accelerate their rate hikes? And that would be a a damaging factor, or at least a speculative factor for bears. Paul, you came in here and you said that you haven't been sleeping very much. What's been keeping you up? (laughs) What's keeping me up really is what sort of policy mix we're going to see out of the new administration. I'm not so concerned about the fiscal policy mix. I think we'll see something there uh, that will be stimulative and the deregulatory uh, aspect will be positive for the market. But it's the trade element. How will the new administration handle the promises uh, to be much more restrictive on trade at a point here where inflation is still benign but could get worse if if we restrict trade and at a point here where global trade itself has, has just begun to recover from a big contraction we really don't need another big restriction in global trade. Paul Christopher, thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you, Lisa and Pim.
Paul Christopher, head global market strategist at well, Wells Fargo Investment Institute in St. Louis. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. The shares of Apple have fallen about 4% since the results of the U.S. presidential election. So what is next for Apple, and is it losing its place as the crown jewel of a technology company? Shira Ovide joins us now. She is a technology columnist and a Bloomberg gadfly, our fast commentary section of Bloomberg. And you can follow her on Twitter at Shira Ovide. Shira, thanks very much for being here. Thank you. So what is this about Apple losing its technology edge? Yeah, well, I think this has basically been a narrative for Apple really in the last five years under Tim Cook, who, of course, um, was the successor to Steve Jobs, the famous co-founder and longtime CEO of Apple. And there's been a question basically since, since Tim Cook took over about whether Apple can sustain its longtime position as basically the trendsetter in the technology industry. This is a company that for a long time took niche ideas like smartphones, like digital music players, and turned them into basically world-changing products and world-changing ideas. And it doesn't seem to be able to do that anymore. Okay, Shira, you know, I love it because you sit in my row and we kind of come up with doomsday scenarios and throw them <laughs> against each other and are perennially, perennially uh, pessimistic. So um, I, I, I read your column and I was like, yes, right, right in line um, with the perennial <laughs> the doomsday crowd here. Yeah, right? Exactly. Um, so Apple, uh, Mark Gerben, Alex Webb and Ian King of Bloomberg News reported that Apple is weighing an expansion into digital glasses. Um, and this, you sort of take a look at what they could bring to it that Google failed to bring in 2013. What are some of the advancements that they could bring that could potentially be lucrative for them? Yeah, so so as our colleagues reported, right, a Apple is uh, kind of working on this idea that may never come to fruition as as all, you know, design and research labs and tech companies, uh, sometimes you work on things that don't pan out. But they're working on these kind of digital glasses that aren't dissimilar to, if people remember Google Glass, which was a product that Google kind of flopped on a couple of years ago. But this idea of uh, kind of eyewear that combines what you see in the real world with digital images, like you might be walking down the street and it will show you uh, a digital map of walking directions to the coffee shop that you're going to or things like that. Right. So why now? I mean, is this basically uh, a really high tech version of Pokemon Go that can yeah. be made more easy for people? P pretty much. Yes. I mean, the thing that we don't know, of course, and maybe Apple doesn't itself know, is what what does this technology do that will really bring something you know clever and innovative to our lives? And Google couldn't figure it out, and that's one reason why um, it pulled glass from circulation. But there is this kind of emerging technology again to sort of mix digital and uh, and real life in these kind of wearable gizmos or on your phone. And that's clearly um, kind of a, a trend for the future. But the question that I raise is, does Apple have a clear vision about this or about anything else uh, in terms of what it can do to a technology to make it mainstream and actually world-changing? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but the, the five-year track record of Apple is not great in this regard. 
having said that, I just want to oppose to you that this is a company that's doing $215 billion <laughs> worth of business a year. Yeah. The net income is over $45 billion yes. a year. Uh, if they just manage that, yeah. that will be an amazing feat. And you know, when you talk about trend-setting technology, Yes, kind of and no, right? Because you don't hear anything about virtual reality, really, from Apple. You don't hear anything about drones. You don't hear anything about new TV monitors. You don't hear anything about Alexis and those home audio assistants that are directly wired to the inventory control system at Amazon. They've been focused on watches, wearables, right? Phones, iPads, and Macs. Yeah, so two things. One is, you're right. I mean, if, if Apple is in a, quote, crisis, most companies would love to be in the crisis condition that Apple is in with, again, enormous profits and uh, enormous sales. But the Apple that that people know is a company that is growing revenue. And this Apple is not doing that anymore. So that's what a crisis looks like for Apple, that it's stagnating sales, and that's a problem for Apple. Real quick, do we have a sense of how much money Apple's putting into this? No idea, but they've doubled R&D spending over the last three years, so they're cooking up a lot of things in their research labs, and hopefully one of them will be a hit. Shira Ovide of Bloomberg Gadfly, always, always a joy speaking with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Humans are suing Chrysler, and this is not uh, going to do wonders for Chrysler shareholders, who which have uh, suffered some losses as a result. I want to bring in Kartike Marotra, a Bloomberg News reporter who wrote the story breaking the news about the fact that Dodge truck owners sued Chrysler on Monday, claiming that some engines were rigged to hide emissions as much as 14 times higher than the law permits. Cardike, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. So um, can you just give us a little bit more of a sense, a deeper sense of the suit, of what instigated it, and uh, how deep this could go? So the allegations are, and and they are only allegations right now, are that uh, Chrysler, before their merger with Fiat um, and their technology, their engine provider, Cummins Inc., had created uh, diesel engines to circumvent new um, regulations by the EPA. Uh, the EPA had created more stringent laws for diesel-based engines, and they thought, we can, we can beat the market to this. The deadline was 2010. They were a few years ahead, and, and they did beat competitors. And uh, the allegation now is that they beat competitors by creating an engine that leaks emissions, and, and they knew about it. So this is for about half a million Dodge Ram trucks that are on U.S. roads. And now the question that will be up to uh, a district court in Michigan is is whether they did do it, whether they did do it intentionally, and, and what damages um, should be rewarded to, to drivers. Carter K., is there any evidence or any detail that you can offer about these specific engines? Have there been issues in the past, for example? Uh, it, it's a bit up in the air. Um, there have been issues in the past with um, defeat devices, as they're known. So, um, well, clearly, for just, example, uh, Volkswagen, right? I mean, that was uh, the Volkswagen store. And just to make mention, uh, Volkswagen has agreed to pay what sixteen and a half billion dollars uh, to resolve all the issues about that uh, the two-liter diesel cars. 
Right, right. So far. So that's that's been the most notorious allegation. But even before that, um, in the late 90s, a number of car makers were hauled up by U.S. regulators for um, installing these defeat devices. And actually, the, the Chrysler case precedes Volkswagen. Um, the allegations over their cars are for model years from 2007 to 2012. Well, VW's only started in 2009. Um, so they're the question is, is this a broader behavior of the auto industry? Um, uh, is there a credibility issue when it comes to clean diesel? Uh, that, that's sort of the questions that, that these cases and the recurring issues do seem to be bringing up, which, you know, we'll find out over time. Well, Cardica, exactly. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, uh, Chrysler is the first U.S. company to be sued for these kinds of emissions uh, rigging scandals. Are you hearing from your sources that there are other lawsuits pending against other U.S. automakers? It would not surprise me. Um, but we haven't heard of any definitive suits in in the works yet. Um, that said, law, uh, lawyers like to keep this pretty close to the chest until they're ready to, to file their suits. Um, so not yet, but that doesn't mean that they won't come, that they're not, not coming uh, ultimately. Is the uh, alleged uh, cheating on this emissions, uh, would this then uh, lead, what, to a discovery process to try to obtain documents or information related to the specific engines? Uh, over time, yeah. Um, I, I think what what uh, we've already heard from Fiat, Chrysler, and Cummins is that they're going to fight the case. Um, so unlike Volkswagen, who, who owned up to it, um, the malfeasance, uh, uh, Fiat Chrysler intends on fighting uh, the allegations. Uh, so, yes, they will go through the, the rigorous court process, which will ultimately include uh, going through discovery and, and finding out uh, what led to the development of these engines and installation. What did the car company know um, at the time that the cars were sold? Real quick, what kinds of legal costs are, is Fiat Chrysler facing at this point? That's a good question. Um, all the complaint says is that um, the the damage to the car would would be um, up to five thousand dollars. So um, components would be damaged because uh, you had to go through the motions of of fixing the cars. Um, so multiply that by by half a million, you're you're starting to climb the ladder. Uh, it's nowhere near sixteen and a half billion yet, but it will cost the company uh, quite a bit. Thank you very much. Kartike Merotra, legal reporter for Bloomberg News. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. It's time now for us to take a little bit closer look into the U.S. economy. A lot's being said about potential inflation, about potential growth. But looking at the numbers, is it showing the same optimism that we're hearing at large? Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We got some retail sales today. What clues do they give us? Well, the retail sales uh, report was an October report. So while you had a couple of unusual trends in that report that maybe are making it look like stronger results than uh, what was really the case. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we have an unusual pattern for gasoline prices. Normally in the second half of the year, uh, especially in October, you see price declines. Uh, we saw modest price increases. So seasonal adjustment 
right off the bat, uh, throws that uh, for a loop. Uh, that being said, uh, when we look a little deeper into the details, don't forget uh, Hurricane Matthew uh, made uh, a close swipe and then eventual landfall at a significant portion of the uh, southeast coast uh, at the uh, start of the month. And when we have hurricanes uh, impacting the U.S., uh, historically you see a big surge in uh, grocery sales. Uh, demand for uh, building supplies, garden equipment, uh, those types of things. Uh, and then you see a drop-off in things like restaurant sales uh, and uh, some of those uh, discretionary categories, furniture, electronics, and whatnot. Uh, and we saw exactly that profile in this report. So it looks like a gangbusters report, uh, and it looks like the fourth quarter is starting off with a, uh, a full head of steam, uh, so to speak. However, uh, we have to remember that the income trend is not justifying uh, this dramatic acceleration. So we'll continue to see fits and starts in the retail data until we see a more pronounced and sustained acceleration in wage and salary income. Yep. Carl yep. Cadana, business inventories, do they matter? Uh, inventories not so critical at this point. Uh, you know, we saw a big liquidation that weighed on growth earlier this year. I think as economic optimism uh, improves uh, heading into year end, and also as businesses look ahead to next year uh, and uh, lick their chops at the prospect of uh, tax cuts and uh, potentially fiscal stimulus, uh, that you'll see uh, more confidence uh, in the business community leading to a, a mod modest uh, inventory restocking, uh, and that should support uh, GDP growth. Well, tomorrow I know we're going to get producer uh, prices, correct, mm -hmm. uh, plus uh, some mortgage applications industrial production, capacity utilization, what what should we be looking for? What do you think is going to guide us to how the economy is performing? Well, I would keep an eye on the uh, industrial production figures, uh, more so than... Uh, you Estimate know, we have for, is for a two... Two tenths of a percent increase. Exactly. So uh, again, this is just kind of uh, middling uh, pace of uh, of activity in the factory sector. However, if we look to another report that was out this morning, uh, the New York Empire Manufacturing down Survey, to, uh, it was uh, what is it down a the, modest the, positive gain. Yes. Well, the I was going to say the survey, the estimate was November down two point five percent, two and a half percent, but it actually came in at plus one and a half percent. Right. And the reason this is such an important report, this is the first economic data series uh, that basically covers the post-election period. So consumer sentiment out last Friday, that was basically tallied before the election results were in. Uh, and so Empire, uh, which should be just a survey of manufacturing conditions in New York State, nonetheless, these production surveys often take on a sentiment component to them when there are significant events like hurricanes or elections or or other types of uh, dramatic uh, movements in the markets and whatnot. Uh, and so... So you're uh, reading this as a positive. This is a positive, and this is mimicking what we're seeing in both the stock and uh, treasury markets, uh, which is looking for for more growth, and as a result of more growth, more inflation uh, in uh, in 2017 and beyond. Carl, yeah, you know, honestly, if I were if I were Tom Keen, I would say let's rip up the script. Um, but I'm I'm looking, I'm wondering, you know, how do you give any sense uh, to your to your economic models when you have this big unknown of Donald Trump's infrastructure pl spending plans, and then you have all of the noise around whether or not they will be effective? Tyler Cowen, uh, he's a professor at George Mason University uh, of Economics. He wrote a, a column for Bloomberg View talking about how Trump's infrastructure plan is fundamentally flawed because it comes at a time when the economy is expanding. 
and when employment uh, unemployment rates are low. And this is typically not when these plans are most effective. How do you model for this? Right. So the, the big debate is if this is a Keynesian economics plan. So anytime you're borrowing uh, from the federal government uh, perspective to finance uh, spending programs, whether it's uh, infrastructure projects or tax cuts or whatnot, uh, that's basically fiscal stimulus. And so we certainly could have used it earlier on in this economic cycle because that's when we needed that critical lift to growth. So it's a little bit late. Uh, nonetheless, it is still going to move the needle on GDP growth. If we are significantly expanding uh, the budget deficit uh, and using that for various projects, uh, that will lift GDP. So would the economy have been fine without this? Yes, it would continue to limp on probably two, two and a half, maybe three percent GDP growth. With this, it will mean that the economy grows faster, uh, and therefore that the Fed can normalize policy a, a bit more aggressively as well. And so, you don't think that the increase in debt that we're probably going to incur will drag on growth uh, in equal proportions? Oh well, there will be a hangover eventually when the bills come due. But uh, for the you know for the near term, uh, interest rates are low, and the financial markets are basically giving a free pass. Uh, to uh, Congress and the president to uh, embark on uh, fiscal stimulus, Carl. If the uh, if interest rates can, we we got a little bit of a of a snapback today in the bond market. I mean, you take a look at the thirty year, for example, we're uh, under three percent right now. We're um, I guess we take a look up more than a full point, up one and eight thirty seconds right on the on the thirty year. So people buying there. But if yields continue to fall, uh, to continue to increase, right? People say, Nah, I don't want to own these bonds. Will they have done the work of the Federal Reserve for Janet Yellen? Will will that still mean a 25 basis point increase? It depends what the other markets are doing. And so if... Uh, other markets of, being Europe, Asia, or, uh, or stock, stock markets? markets? and other aspects okay. of the financial market. So taken by itself, the backup in Treasury yields and mortgage uh, rates uh, should be a tightening of financial conditions. But if you look on the Bloomberg terminal at FCON, financial conditions, uh, it Correct. actually tells you that financial conditions have eased since the election. So people are just focusing on interest rates. You have to keep in mind what's happening to credit spreads, what's happening to the equity markets, etc. Uh, and so we're not seeing a tightening of financial conditions that would tell the Fed, oh, the markets are doing the work for us. We can take a pass in December. It's an a very important signal for the Fed to validate the health of the economy by saying, yes, despite everything that's gone on, uh, we still deem it appropriate to take that next step at the December meeting. And we should hear as much from Janet Yellen when she testifies to the JEC on Thursday. Right. She's going to be uh, probably asked a lot of questions having to do with that December rate hike. And whether she uh, maybe will want to stay on as a Fed chair after her term expires in 2018. Well, that's certainly become a political issue uh, during if the If the Fed wants to be politically independent, nothing would be more so than her to say she'll stick on regardless. Thank you very much. Carl Riccadonna is our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.